get everything organized here. Good morning. We are in week three of our series in Second Corinthians. It's called Old Made New. And we're in chapter one, beginning in verse 12 this morning. We're going to look at chapter one, verse 12 through chapter two and verse four. So if you have a Bible nearby, please Get that out and have it ready to follow along. Leland Finkbeiner is going to read the scripture for us this morning. Leland, thank you for reading. Please bring God's word to us. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia. And have you sent me on my way to Judea? Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes, and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our heart as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, that we lorded over you, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Thank you, Leland. Let's pray. Oh God, as we assemble here this morning as one body, though in different places, some present here, some at home or in other places, we remember that our lives are a vapor. They'll be done before we know it. And this is a holy moment 
for you are present here with us. I am this feeble messenger, but there is this life-giving eternal message that you are ready to deliver. And I pray for each person hearing. Pray for those who are leaning in and ready. I pray for those who are distracted. I pray for those who are sick or tired, struggling. I pray for those who are not even paying attention right now. I pray, oh God, that you would do eternal things through the proclamation of your word for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to tell you a story about a guy who just wants to replace a toilet seat. It's not hard. There's only two little plastic bolts. Go to Home Depot. He gets the toilet seat. And as he starts working on it, he's working and he realizes, oh man, the toilet's leaking. That's not good. I can't just leave that. So he realizes then he's got a little bigger project. So he goes to disconnect the supply line. And as he's working on that, you know what happens? He breaks, he breaks it. And he breaks the water pipe. And now he's got a flood. So he's now in the beginning stages of a toilet seat replacement becoming an entire full bathroom remodel. That's how these things happen. Because when he pulls the toilet out, he's going to find out there's rotten wood underneath there. And the floor is going to have to go, so you might as well do the shower and the tile and paint and all that. And sometimes things go like that, don't they? You ever had an experience like that? It's like everything you try, it just goes worse and goes south and things get worse. This passage is kind of like that experience. The relationship between the writer, the Apostle Paul, and this church in Corinth, it's rocky. It's, it's complicated, as people say today. And no matter what he does, it only seems to get worse. He's trying his best. He visits. It goes badly. Okay. He writes a letter instead. It goes badly. He sends a co-worker. That goes badly. He decides not to visit because the last visit didn't go so well. That goes badly. Becoming an entire remodel. Everything is going badly. The church decides that because he keeps changing his travel plans, he's fickle, he's unreliable, he can't be relied upon, he's flighty. Speaks out of both sides of his mouth. He says yes and no at the same time so he can keep all his options open. This church is resisting him when they should have been welcoming him because God was sending him to them for their good and their joy, but they didn't get it. Now, I want to ask you a question. Let's be honest as we come to this passage. Why would we study this passage? Why spend time looking at Paul's changed travel plans? Why why would we do that? Why take time thinking through what this passage meant historically and might mean for us today? Passages like this, I think, are some of the reasons why 2 Corinthians doesn't always get a lot of preaching time. And honestly, if we only did topical preaching here, I'm not sure I would ever look at this passage and say, oh, I know exactly when our church needs this passage. It's just not how it works. But we do expository preaching here where we go through chunks of the Bible because we believe that every word of Scripture is divinely inspired and profitable for God's people. 
Every word of it, every paragraph of it, every page of it. So we don't want to leave any of it out. And the reality is this passage is a window into Paul's ministry. It's a window given by the Holy Spirit because inside this window, as we open this up and look inside, we'll find embedded here timeless truths that reach across the centuries and around the globe to give us here in Fairfax in 2021 a vision for healthy Christian leadership and the relationship between spiritual leaders and churches. If you're, if you're an aspiring leader, if you wonder if maybe God's calling you to be a pastor or, or calling you into some kind of ministry or leadership or responsibility, this is a wonderful passage for you. If you love the church, this is a wonderful passage for you. If you're a member of a church, this is a wonderful passage for you. What kind of church will Redeeming Grace Church be in 20 years? 2041. If we're to be a healthy church, we must have a vision for healthy spiritual leadership. Healthy churches need godly leaders whose model for leadership isn't based in worldly wisdom, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we find in this passage. The Holy Spirit is teaching us here about ministry and a particular kind of ministry and a particular kind of spiritual leadership, the kind that he approves of and calls for. So, this morning we're going to get three simple, basic leadership lessons. Lead with sincerity, lead from the gospel, and lead for joy. Very simple. So we're going to start, it comes in these, the, these paragraphs that we have in front of us. Lead with sincerity. As, as, as he opens the passage here, he writes, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, verse 12, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom. Now, as we read through this, we're being introduced today. This is a, a, a letter that, by our, our, our accounting, has 13 chapters. We're being introduced to some of the big themes that come up later in the letter and are woven throughout the letter. Boasting occurs, I think, 26 times in this, in this letter. It's a, it's a big theme. Worldly wisdom as opposed to spiritual wisdom is a big theme. This tense relationship between the leader, the apostle, Paul, and, the, and this church is a, is a big theme. After that sweet meditation, if you were here last week, that sweet meditation in the first part of chapter 1 of God's comfort in all affliction, now he begins to open up the topic of why he's changed his travel plans yet again. But before he gets to the question of why he's changed his plans, he explains his standards for relating to them. He says, with simplicity and godly sincerity, I've related to you. Not by earthly wisdom, but by sincerity and simplicity. What's, what's going on here? Well, the idea here is that there's a, there's a kind of earthly wisdom a worldly wisdom, a fleshly wisdom that, that is utterly different from God's wisdom than spiritual wisdom. There's a way of relating to people that we learn in the world. It comes naturally to us because we've lived in the world. 
But that's completely different than God's way. This earthly wisdom is the kind of thing you would have found in the streets of Corinth in the first century where these professional philosophers were traveling around, strutting their stuff, puffing themselves up, impressing people with their resumes and accomplishments and collecting large fees from people. They were getting rich doing this. We'll come to see these very people had wormed their way into this church and they were winning their hearts and minds. Paul begins this letter by saying, I am not like that. That's not the way I behave. I behave with sincerity and, wisdom and, and, and simplicity. In other words, he, what he's saying is my agenda here isn't to get rich off of you guys. My agenda here isn't to impress you with my resume, with how many best-selling books I have, with my many awards and, and that sort of thing. He's saying I have always been straightforward with you. When it comes to me, what you see is what you get. That's how it's been, that's how it is, that's how it will be. He says his boast isn't of his accomplishments, his boast is of his simplicity and his sincerity. And he says it because he knows and he reminds them that soon enough, one day, they'll all be with the Lord. And there'll be no boasting of accomplishments then. The kind of boasting they'll be going on there is they're going to be boasting of each other and how they helped one another in the Lord. So the first lesson we learn here is about simplicity. Lead with simplicity. Be a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of person. The second thing that comes up here is, is really surprising because the gospel is going to pop up in the middle of this conversation. So the second point is this, lead from the gospel. Let me uh, read verses 15 and 16 for you. He says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Now, we did this a couple weeks ago, but I want to do it again. I, I love maps, and, I, and I'm visual, and I can't figure this kind of stuff out without being able to sort of see it in my mind. So I want to remind you, if you were here a couple weeks ago, and, and, and show you if you weren't, you, in order to understand what's going on in this letter, you've got to have some sense of what's happening, and you need to have a triangle in mind. The lower right of that triangle, the green arrow there, that's Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. The top of the triangle, the yellow arrow there, that's this region of Macedonia, modern-day Greece, where Philippi and, and Berea and Thessalonica and some other, other cities are. And then the lower left, the western side, that purple arrow, that's Corinth, okay? And then if you notice, way over on the lower right, that's Jerusalem. That's this area of Judea. So here's what's happening. Paul's in Ephesus. He's planted the church in, in Corinth, and he tells them at the end of the, 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 the letter that he writes that we know as 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm going to come visit you guys. Here's my plan. So this might be um, plan one. I'm going to go to Macedonia. So I'm going to go from Ephesus to Macedonia, going to go from the bottom right to the top of the triangle, and then I'm going to come visit you after that. That's plan one. Now, before he can do that, some things happen. He gets news that things are not going well over there in Corinth. What to do? Well, what he decides to do is he decides to make an unplanned trip. So he goes across the Aegean Sea from Ephesus straight to Corinth. That's this P 
painful visit that he mentions in chapter 2, verse 1, because it doesn't go well. They don't receive him. They're not responding to him. They, they prefer these, uh, these other leaders. So he leaves. Now what to do? Well, he says, okay, that didn't work out. I'll try writing a letter. So he writes a letter. That letter is referred to in chapter 7 of, of this letter. And in that letter, he, he, or in chapter 7, he says, the letter grieved them. It didn't go well either. It just caused more pain. And so now what's he going to do? Well, he decides, I'm going to make a new travel plan. I got to go back there. So he decides he's going to go from Ephesus over to Corinth, up to Macedonia, back to Corinth, and then over to Jerusalem. Because part of the idea in these travels is he's collecting money for poor Christians who are over in Judea. And so all these churches over there in Corinth and Macedonia are going to contribute to this offering. So now he's got a new travel plan. The more he thinks about it and prays about it and maybe gets information about what's going on there, he realizes, you know, that last visit didn't go well. And oh, should I go? Should I not go? Maybe I, shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't go there twice. Maybe I should only go there first, once. And so he decides to not go from Ephesus to Corinth to Macedonia. He goes back to plan one. He goes from Ephesus to Macedonia and then on to Corinth. And while he's up in Macedonia, he writes this letter that we're reading here. So think about it from the perspective of these people in Corinth. Hey, dude, you said you were going to visit once. Then you dropped in unexpectedly. Then you said you were going to visit twice. Then you decided not to do that. Look, we know how this works. You're fickle. We can't rely on you. You're just a flighty, speak out of both sides of your mouth leader. Uh, now just, just pause here. Because actually this should encourage some of you. Right? Think about it. This is the great apostle. He wrote a whole bunch of our New Testament. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to write these documents that we still benefit from. And here he is. He can't figure out what to do. He's pulling his hair out. What do I do with these people? How do I love them with the love of Christ? How do I work with them for their joy? I don't know what to do. Everything I do goes badly. You in a relationship like that right now? Parents? Kids, brother and sister in Christ, family member. Hey, you know what? Relationships in church can be messy. Don't be surprised by that. Even if you have the best motives and you do the absolute best that you know how to do, things don't always go well. And if you're in the middle of a relationship like that, don't despair and don't give up. Don't despair. And don't give up. God's grace is sufficient even for these relationships. And his comfort is available even in the midst of this affliction. The church thinks he's flighty. You say yes and no at the same time so you can keep your options open. Can't rely on you. How would you respond? Ever had somebody accuse you of something? Accuse you of bad motives? Accuse you of wrong behavior? Do you know what that feels like when you get accused of that? Look at how Paul responds. I love what happens here. He says in verse 18, look with me, please. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always 
Yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Can you see what is happening right here? It's sort of stunning. I want to call this a gospel geyser. You ever seen Old Faithful? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've seen pictures of this geyser, right, in Yellowstone Park. You know what happens? Underneath the ground, there's all this superheated water. And the pressure builds up, and about 20 times a day, Old Faithful geyses. I don't know what the verb is. The steam and the water come, come out. And, and if you get there, as we got to go visit there one time, and it isn't geysing, Stick around because it will. It's reliable. It's faithful because underneath that surface, that pressure keeps building up and it's got a vent. It's got to find its way out. And that's how the gospel works in Paul's life. Here he is talking about changed plans and being accused of being fickle. And you know what happens? The gospel gushes out. It becomes one more opportunity for him to talk about God and Christ. I love it. It's so different from how the way the world works. Paul, why do you keep changing your plans? And he tells them, listen, If you're going to understand what's happening here, you can't think purely in human terms. We have to think theologically. The key statement here in verse 18, he says, as surely as God is faithful, our word has not been yes and no. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, listen, if you want to understand how I work, you have to work from how God is in his character, how that gets transmitted through the gospel and then works out in a human being like me. And I love what he does. He says, look, how could we say yes and no when God says yes in Christ? He says, all those promises of God, remember all those promises of God that are in your Bibles? He says, God takes all those promises and he assembles them all together and he puts Jesus in front of those promises and he says, yes, 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 every promise of God is fulfilled in him. And now we see that and we say, amen. If you know the word amen, you know some Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word and it means yes, it means we agree, it means let it be so. And so what he's saying here is, listen, Let's talk about speech. God has given all these promises. God is faithful in his character. He's fulfilled all those promises. They're all converging on and pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we look at that and we say, yes and amen. We agree with that too. And now the faithful God who keeps his promises has brought us all together in Christ. He's sealed us with his spirit He's given us that spirit as a down payment and a guarantee. And one of the things that guarantee guarantees us of is that one day we're all going to be together in the greatest family reunion in history, gathered around God's throne in the presence of this great God and his son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to be saying, yes, yes, amen. Do you see what's happened here? The gospel has erupted out of this everyday situation of conflict. Oh, I I read this and I think, oh Lord, I want to be like this. I wish I was like this more. I hope I'm like this increasingly. In other words, 
they charge him with being fickle and he says, in effect, fickle? Huh? May it never be. The faithful God who keeps his promises in Christ, that God has put his spirit in me. How can I not speak as faithfully as he speaks? Do you see how the gospel functions in these everyday situations of his life? That's why we love the gospel. It's intended to work its way into every corner of our behavior, of our speech, of our relationships, and of our leadership. So spiritual leaders must lead from the gospel. I'm inspired by this. And I hope, I hope I can be more and more like this as the days go by. Third, lead for joy. Here's the other big surprise. Listen, look back at at verse 23. He says, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith. Hear this. Lean into this. Hear these words. Not that we lorded over your faith. But we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. And now, finally, we learn the real reason why he changed his plans. He says, look, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming. It wasn't that he's fickle. He's not gauging the currents of popularity and what people are saying about him and figuring out what's the easiest, most comfortable way for him to go forward. He's not avoiding conflict. When the church there is resisting him and there are people rallying against him and there are individuals there who are uniquely and particularly rallying against him. We'll see that come into view next week in the passage there. Think of his options here. He's not there on site. He could have just washed his hands of them. Forget it. I've had enough. I gave it my best shot. Lord, Do what you will. He could could have done that. He could have, on the other hand, come and dropped the hammer of apostolic authority, cleaned house, you're gone, you're gone, you're gone, I've had enough with you, you can't talk for a year. I mean, he could have done all that. But he doesn't lead like that at all because he doesn't lead by earthly wisdom. His, His model for leadership doesn't come from Corinth. It comes from the character of God. Look at it coming to view in verse 4 of chapter 2 here at the end of our passage. He says, listen to this. This is spiritual leadership. Here's a, here's a biography. Here's an x-ray into spiritual leadership. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. His love for them left him anguished. Sometimes when we love people, it works that way, doesn't it? His love for them left him in tears and perplexed. I don't know what to do. This is what I was trying to do when I wrote it. You didn't get it. It just grieved you. That's That's what I was trying to do. I love you. Visit. Wait. Go now. Go later. Go there first. Go there second. I... I don't know what to do. I love these people. Lord, help me. See, he knows they need him. There are serious doctrinal 
and relational issues, moral issues in this church. It's a church that's in trouble. They need him. Worldly wisdom is taking root in this church in a significant and uh, a way that's, that's causing many troubles and problems there. But, but he decides to back off. He decides to wait. He decides to give them some time to let the Spirit work. And I love what comes into view here because he combines truth and love. You know, some people are valiant for truth. They feel the prophet's burden to set the record straight, to get people on God's agenda no matter what and as soon as possible. And other people are moved by compassion at these huge hearts. They're tender and understanding and empathetic. But we need both those things, right? Because truth without love is a clanging gong that benefits no one. And love without truth is just empty and goes nowhere. And so... We see this in our world today, don't we? In the disagreements about politics and race and COVID and, and all these other things. We, we need truth and we need love. We need light and we need warmth, right? We need both of these things to be working together. And, and here's how they combine in this wonderful, lovely sentence. We work with you for your joy. There's a one-sentence summary of Christian leadership. You could ride that wave a long way. We work with you for your joy. Does that surprise you? We work with you for your, for your joy? Where does joy come from? Let's think theologically about joy. To see a sunrise, like we've had some spectacular ones the last few mornings cup of coffee with a friend. Where, where does joy, where does it come from? Why is joy in the universe? Joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit of God. Joy is a part of the character of God. One of my favorite verses in scripture is Hebrews 1.9. It's a quote from Psalm 45. It says that God has anointed Jesus, check this out, with the oil of gladness. The Father is giving the Son gladness, joy. And not just a little, it says, beyond all his companions. In other words, he's saying, there is no human being that's ever been or ever will be more joyful than Jesus. Joy is part of the eruption of the character of God into human life. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. That's what happens when the Lord comes on the scene. It brings joy. Joy is God's agenda for creatures made in his image. The greatest joy any human being can know is found in a reconciled relationship with the God who created us to share his joy with us. If you don't know this joy, you can. God is calling you into a joy-filled relationship with him through this redeemer, Mediator and reconciler named Jesus. Lead for joy. We work with you for your joy. As I said in the beginning, this passage of scripture is a window into the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. We have no apostles today. Nobody's writing scripture. Nobody's leading with the authority that Paul had in these times. And we obviously live here in Fairfax. We don't live in Greece, but we can benefit from this passage because there are timeless principles 
and patterns of spiritual leadership that we desperately need. And let me highlight three for you. Three implications of this passage for all of us today. First, discern. I'm going to just give you three words. Discern, welcome, and remember. First is discern. I want to urge you to develop leadership discernment. What makes for a successful Christian leader? What makes for a godly Christian leader? How do you decide who to listen to? Whose podcast to subscribe to? Which YouTube sermons maybe to watch? Or what books to read? Or what links to click on your Instagram feed? What church to join? How do you know who to follow? We must have discernment in these things. We need to distinguish those who lead based on worldly wisdom and those who lead based on spiritual wisdom. We need to look for leaders who are sincere. What you see is what you get leaders. We want leaders whose boasting is not about their accomplishments, but who, as Paul will say later in in this letter, boast of their weaknesses. We want to look for leaders who, who are gospel geysers. When you hear a sermon, read a book, read a blog post, listen to a podcast, how long does it take for the gospel to come into view? Are you being trained by people that you're listening to how the gospel and the grace that comes to you in the gospel makes it possible for you to live as a Christian. That that's the engine for the Christian life. I have a book here. I was thinking about this this week and preparing this message. This is a good book. It's about spiritual leadership. It's called Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. It's a very good book. And he's writing because there are patterns of spiritual leadership in the church today that are unhealthy, they're worldly, they're unbiblical. And, and, and he's, he's calling people to a, a, a biblical understanding of leadership. He's got some very good things to say. The irony is this book that was written only in 2012 has five blurbs on the back dust jacket. Of those five spiritual leaders that are writing their endorsement of this book, three are no longer in ministry. One has walked away from the faith. One was disqualified through sexual immorality. And one was disqualified through his abuse of his authority and power. If that isn't an illustration of where we are in the broader church today, we must develop discernment about leadership. May God help us become discerning about godly leadership and leaders. Second, welcome. Welcome. I want to encourage you and urge you to welcome godly leaders into your life. Look for patterns of godliness. Remember, there's only one perfect leader. That's Jesus, right? So if you look for perfection, if that's your standard in human leadership, you will be disappointed and you will find no one to follow because only Jesus is like that. But you want to look then for patterns of godliness, not perfection. And when you find godly leaders who lead in the manner that we're learning here in this passage, open your heart to them. Join that church when you find leaders like that. Leaders like this have to be local. Podcasts are great. YouTube sermons are great. But God establishes leaders and people together in congregations called churches so that on the last day they can boast of us and we can boast of them. 
These relationships are precious. And as we see in this passage, worth investing in, worth fighting for. They're not disposable like the blue masks that are being worn and disposed by millions in this country right now, right? Church is a dress rehearsal for this great family reunion in heaven when we boast of one another and how God has worked for good through them in our lives. Finally, remember, remember, discern, welcome, and remember. Remember that godly leaders have your joy as their goal. Remember that. Redeeming Grace Church, can I have your attention, please? Church members, on behalf of the elders, I want to say as clearly as I know how, your joy is our goal. Your joy is our goal. We believe that God is most glorified in us when we are rejoicing in him. So your joy is our goal. Don't always know how to do that. Struggle. See through a glass darkly. Please pray for us. Thank you for praying for us. We know we're not perfect and we really, really know we're not impressive. Right? You will always find someone more impressive than us. But you will never find Anyone who seeks your joy more zealously than we do. We love you. We pray for you. We agonize over you. With tears and smiles. We make decisions the best we can for your joy. We put forward this idea of uniting with Sojourn Church as best we know, for your joy. Remember, I don't always get my way around here either, right? I'm an elder and I'm a church member and this passage helps me remember that I need other people in my life working for my joy. And what a joy I have to be a part of a church where members and elders are working together to that end. I love you and I love this church. And I love the grace of God that's present here amongst us. Verse 20. Let me close here. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Isn't that a great verse? Maybe meditate on and memorize that verse this week. See what's happening there? All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And then when we see that, you know what happens? We say, yeah, amen. That's right. I'm up for that. So what we want to do right now is we want to respond by saying amen. Yes, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. We want to say yes to God through Christ. We want to do that as we go into our week. We want to do that at work and at school. We want to do that in times of conflict, in times when we're doing well. We want to do that as we close this service by bringing a song of amen to him. So if the worship team would please join me up here. We want to end our time this morning by singing our amen, our yes to God 
through Jesus and for Jesus. So if you're here with me, please stand and let's get ready to sing.